we're going to dive back into our look at this notion of uh, how we speak to ourselves, the kind of conversations that we have in our hearts. Uh, we, it was a series that we started probably a month and a half ago, and then it's just been interrupted by so many things, um, sickness and Easter, and that's a good interruption, Easter, um, but uh, holidays. And so hopefully now we'll finish it off in the next five weeks, um, just get it straight so it's in our head, and we're wrestling with the truth of how we speak to ourselves. Um, there was a verse in a song that we sang. I don't know if you um, absorbed it or read it, but it said, love enough to cover every sin in thought, in deed, in attitude. I don't know if you ever confess your sins of thought. We're really good at confessing sins of act, but the reality is we even sin in our hearts. Um, we sin in our thought lives. We sin in the conversations that we have um, with ourselves. And so that's part of where we're going is that we need to realize that the work of God is not only an external work in our lives, but it's also an internal work. It's a work about changing the way that we think and the conversations that we have inside of ourselves. As the psalmist says in Psalm um, 51, 6, you desire truth in our innermost being, not just externally, but truth inside of us thinking truth, living truth, that truth guiding us and determining the conversations that we have with ourselves. Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote in one of his books um, that probably the most, uh, one, of the most, one of the reasons we're most unhappy is that, or he says, one of the, most of our unhappiness in life is caused because we listen to ourselves rather than talk to ourselves. And that's part of where we're going is that we need to be actively engaged in the conversations that we have inside of our hearts, which you're having with yourself right now. We don't just listen to what those voices are inside of us. We actually argue with them, talk back to them, debate them, put them down, take them captive, as the Word of God tells us in various places. We realize um, throughout Scripture that holiness of thought matters. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit about um, the purity of our minds and our thoughts and uh, how self-talk in, interacts with what goes on in our heads and, and with those thoughts that we have. And then the week after that, Lord willing, I want to talk about the place of the conscience uh, with self-talk. Uh, I can't remember the last time I've ever heard a sermon on the conscience, but we need to understand how our conscience and the conversations that we have with ourselves interact with one another. The truth of the matter is, and we'll go through this, is God is aware of what goes on in our hearts. Nobody else is because they're personal and they're private and they're nonverbal. And so sometimes that's why we think we have license in our hearts to say whatever we want. But God knows what we say. God hears what we say to ourselves. And it matters to him so much so that he wants to transform our inward conversations as well. And... Uh, we could call this series the sanctification of our self-talk. Uh, just as we have to work at speaking the right things verbally towards one another and controlling the words that we say, not no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, no malicious talk. Um, we are aware of the verbal um, or the auditory words that we speak, but what about all the internal words? Sanctification also implies there, and so we're gonna talk about that a little bit this morning. Um, this is not a theological definition of sanctification. This is a Paul definition, um, but it, I, I think, serves our purposes, our, our context right now. As you know, this word sanctification or sanctify, I, I doubt any one of you, unless you were having a specific conversation about a word from Scripture, use that in conversation this week. 
with your workmates or at school or on the phone with your grandkids. I, I doubt that was part of your vocabulary. It's something that has kind of gone to the wayside, but it is biblical vocabulary. This word sanctification and uh, uh, sanctify are woven all through scripture. And so what do we mean when we use that word and what is it all about? Well, sanctification is a process. It's a process whereby God takes we who are sinners and transforms us into the perfection of his son, Jesus Christ. Sanctification is that process whereby we are transformed into the image and the likeness of Christ. Strange as that may seem, it doesn't mean that we are all robots, um, but it means that we think like Christ, we act like Christ, we have the purity of Christ, we have the attitudes of Christ. It is this incredible work accomplished in us through the Spirit of God that transforms us into Christ-likeness. There's many, many scriptures that speak about this. These are just a few. Uh, first of all, this is the will of God for you, says Paul, your sanctification. That's how important it is. There's, there's, there's only about five places in the scripture where we clearly have this word, this is the will of God. And this is one of them. This is the will of God for you, your sanctification. It matters. It matters to God. It is God's mind for you. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. Now may the Lord God of peace himself sanctify or transform you completely. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. When did this um, process and this will of God uh, first take place? Well, it says God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Before this world was ever made, God wanted to call people together and gather them together so that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that process in part is made possible through Christ who, who, who came and loved the church so much, you and I, that he gave himself. He died, he died for us to take our sins in order to sanctify us, to transform us into the likeness of his son. And then uh, says, we ought also to give thanks to God for you, brothers and sisters, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. How? Through the sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. It is so critical to our spiritual life and our spiritual growth is this sanctification through the Spirit and our belief in the truth of the Word of God. And so I just want to wrestle with this. It's fairly basic, but wrestle with this together uh, as we are here. First of all, I, I think we just have to make it so clear that the, the transformation of those inner conversations that we have is a work of the Spirit. We will not accomplish the perfection that Christ has and that God wants for us in our own means and with our own strength. But it's absolutely essential. I was reading this a number of weeks ago, which just has reinformed or reinforced to me the necessity of the work of God on the inside of me. This author writes, it is relatively easy to forsake deeds of sin. You know that, right? If you smoke and, and people tell you you shouldn't smoke, well, it's, it's, you just, you just, you're tired of people commenting about you smoking, so you give it up. Uh, there's, there's a lot of external stealing if you're a thief. Um, you, you, you were concerned about what people say when you steal something. You don't want to be known as a thief. And so over time, you can give up those things because you have the external pressure of family and friends and workmates who say, no, don't do that. 
So it's relatively easy to forsake deeds of sin, but sins of our thought life are soul coloring sins, character damaging sins. Dealing with them honestly and thoroughly is one of the most difficult aspects of mortifying or putting to death sin inside of us. If we ever want to make real progress in sanctification, this author writes, however, this is an area which we must attack and destroy our sinful habits with a vengeance. Do you understand what he's saying? He says, it's relatively easy for us to deal with external stuff, but it's the internal stuff which is so soul damaging, but which is also so difficult because nobody else knows about it except you and God. We get these indications about God's knowledge of us um, various places in scripture. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path, you know my lying down and you're acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. That's how intimate God's knowledge of you and I is. In another place, um, uh, the psalmist writes, if we have forgotten the name of God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? Because he knows the secrets of our heart. In another place, the psalm, or uh, Jesus says, uh, he says, you are the ones who justifies yourself in the sight of others. It's really easy. It's, it's fairly easy to live a good life in front of other people. We don't want their censure. We don't want their condemnation. We don't want their criticism. And so we can live a certain way when others are watching us. But Jesus goes on and he says, but God knows the heart. And this is why we so need the work of the spirit of God to deal with the inside of us, which only we see and know. I don't know about you, but this work of my thought life is not a pleasant one. And it's still not an easy one for me to deal with today. What goes on in my heart and the things that I say to myself and the things that I say about others, even sometimes the things that I say about God sometimes terrify me. And I wonder, where did that come from? Paul, what were you thinking? It shocks me sometimes the conversations that all of a sudden I find myself having in my heart the motives that I know are behind certain actions. We can't lie. We all know the motives of why we do things. But even more powerful for me than being terrified sometimes by what goes on in my heart is the wonder that God knows all of that and yet loves me. I think one of the things we are most afraid of, isn't it, is that people really know us, they will leave us. They will abandon us. They will want nothing to do with us. Well, what about inside of us? God knows all of that. And he says, okay, listen, I'm gonna come alongside of you and we're gonna work this stuff out. And you know what? I'm gonna put my spirit in you and my spirit is gonna work to transform your inward conversation to conform with the reality of my holiness and my righteousness. Some of you may have experienced the joy of giving up an addiction or a habit something you wrestle with all of your life. It's an external one and people saw it and people knew about it. And finally, one day you beat it and you really haven't had trouble with it since. And you look back now and you think, wow, this is so much better life now. 
Well, let me say there is as much joy, if not more, when you change a thought pattern. When you all of a sudden realize that a hatred that was gripping you or an anxiety that was paralyzing you or a fear that was terrifying you is all of a sudden transformed by the truth of God in your innermost being. As you begin to speak truth to yourself and that truth transforms you inside out, the joy that comes with all of a sudden realizing, I haven't thought that for weeks. I haven't been anxious for months. It is a wonder and a joy to experience the transformation of your insides by the work of God. I want to impress on us this morning that those inner conversations that you have with yourself cannot be tackled through sheer willpower. They cannot be tackled in your own strength. They cannot be tackled in a way that will be eternal, eternally beneficial to you. Some of you might be saying, well, Paul, this is just a matter of, of positive thinking and negative thinking. This is just a, a matter of, you know, I need to have more positive thoughts and I need to get rid of negative thoughts. Well, let me say right off the bat, positive thinking will not save you. Positive thinking will not give you eternal life. Positive thinking is generally not about moral issues. And sometimes those categories of positive and neg negative thinking are mixed up. For instance, there's a Christian song, um, I can't remember where it says that Christ died for such a worm as I. That's not positive thinking, to go around reminding yourself that you're a worm. But it's biblical thinking. And so we need to be careful not to mix positive negative thinking with the sanctification of our thinking or our thought life. Solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil, not between positive and negative thinking. Secondly, some of you might be thinking, well, what about cognitive behavioral therapy? Changing my behavior by the way that I think. Well, on one level, there is some benefit to that. You can change your behavior by changing the way that you think. You can improve your golf spring, golf swing. You can um, you can improve certain areas of your life by changing the way that you talk to yourselves. But again, that is not moral change. That is not eternal change. And we can wash the outside of the cup without ever doing anything about the inside of the cup. We can change an external behavior without changing the heart. I've said this so often as parents. Um, the, your, your goal is not to change the behavior of your kid, simply that alone. In other words, if your child misbehaves, you put them in the corner and they go and stand in the corner you've, and, and you get them to think about behavior, but inside they're saying, I'm sitting down, I'm sitting down. What you need to do is get at their heart. And if you change their heart, you will change their external behavior for good. As one old timer wrote, it's easier to reform men's manners, men's outward behavior, than to renew their minds. Paul got this. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern what the will of God is, good and acceptable and perfect. Because again, we know what Jesus said about the heart and why we so need to change the heart, not just the behavior, because Jesus says, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, 
adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witnesses, and slander. And so I need the Holy Spirit. I can't do it in my own strength. I can't do it in a way that is eternally beneficial. I need the work of the Holy Spirit in me to help me transform the things that I say to myself, the way that I talk to myself, the conversation that I have regarding the circumstances that encompass my life. So where does it all begin? This is, this is sort of basic theology 101. But where does it all begin? It begins by being born again. That song that we sang is absolutely critical to the transformation and the sanctification of your self-talk. You cannot do it on your own. The Bible says that before we are made new, before we are born again, we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. That all of our life is a life of hostility towards God. It's only until the Holy Spirit gives us life makes us new. We're born again, to to use the scripture. It's like we were born once physically and we had life. When you came out of your, your mother's womb, you had life. Well, there's a sense in which, a real sense in which the spirit of God brings us to life and we have spiritual life. And it's only when we have that spiritual life that we can begin to um, see that life changed by his power and see that transformation occur into the likeness of Christ. New birth is absolutely essential and it is wholly and completely a work of God. Those who live according to the flesh, writes Paul, set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Two different ways of thinking. For, the mind, the set of, for to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Because we're dead. We have no spiritual life in us. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves. We don't want to, and we can't obey God. You, however, he writes, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. And in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And so in other words, this process of sanctification, this ability to change how we talk to ourselves in those internal conversations begins with new birth. That's where it starts as the Spirit of God breathes new life into these dead bodies. What's, it goal? What's its goal and how is it achieved? We've, we've talked about this already. What's the goal of sanctification? What's the, why does God save us? There's so many reasons that he saves us, but one of them is to recreate us, to transform us, to um, bring us into the likeness of his son, Jesus Christ. That is amazing, actually. God doesn't leave us where he finds us, but he says, okay, um, let's start this journey. And I'm gonna take you, and I'm gonna work with you, and I'm gonna cause things to happen in you. And you are going to, at the end of this process, be perfect. That's staggering. And so that's the goal of the sanctification of our self-talk is perfection, is Christ-likeness. The goal of the Spirit's work in the sanctification of our self-talk is that we would have the heart and the mind of Christ, that our inner conversations reflect the heart and the mind of Christ. You know, I, I, I just, I have no concept what that is like completely. 
There are times when I'm thankful that God stops me in one path of thinking and redirects me in another way, but it's a constant battle. I so long for that day when it is always and only right thoughts, pure thoughts, good conversations, godly conversations that reflect my heavenly father and my elder brother Christ. It's achieved through union with Christ. Um, this is a hard concept. And I, what, I, what I just want to do is drop it in your hearts and heads and for you then to take it and work on it on your own. Um, so, so it can only happen when we're born again. Um, it's a process. The, the goal of it is to transform us into the perfection of Christ. But it's achieved through union with Christ. And by, by, by that, I, I mean various things. And these aren't all scriptural. These are sometimes Paul's um, ways of thinking about it. But union with Christ is as though Christ is the air that I breathe. You take away air and you die. You take away Christ and your spiritual life is non-existent. My life is bound up with him. It, and I, I say this so carefully, but it, it's like we're Siamese twins. But he's the dominant one and I'm, I'm the passive one. And if you cut me off from Christ, Christ will live, but I will die. That, that I, I need his life. I need his help. I need his perfection. I, I need to be connected with Christ. It's like, like a branch is connected to the, the, the stem of the tree or whatever you call that long thing. And it goes down into the ground in roots and it's the roots that nourish the branch, not the branch, not the other way around. And you cut off the branch and it will die, but the tree still goes on. I need to be attached to Christ because he is my nourishment. He is my life. He is what feeds me. He is what sustains me. And sanctification is only possible because I am connected, united in Christ. As Paul will say in another place, he says, it is no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. It's Christ who animates me. It's Christ who empowers me. It's, it's Christ who transforms me. And as soon as I am disconnected from Christ, I am done. And so this change in my way of thinking and my way of talking to myself is intimately and completely related to my connection with Christ. And Paul will talk about this in Romans 6 and, and you can read it. How, how intimately are we connected with Christ? Well, this way. Paul will say there that we have died with Christ, that we have been buried with Christ, that we are raised from the dead with Christ and that we not walk in newness of life because we walk with Christ. And what that means is that all that Christ accomplished, his, his, his victory over sin, his victory over death is mine as I am united with him. Outside of Christ, I am done. But when I'm united with Christ, part of him, then his death is my death. His life is my life. That's how this sanctification process is perfected in me because of my union with Christ. See, before, before I was united with Christ, Paul describes um, sin and its control over me with some pictures. He, he says, uh, sin is like a king who reigns over us. Kings have power, um, more so in olden days than in, in present days, but in days gone by, kings had the power of life and death. 
king had the power to take your son or your daughter, your daughter to be his wife, your son to be his servant. You couldn't see a thing. It had that kind of control. That's what sin is like in us before we know God. It is like a king. He also portrays sin as a general who employs our bodies as weapons in his warfare. A general over an army has complete control over his men and he sends this platoon over to that part of the battle. He sends this platoon over to that part of the battle. He tells them where to go. He tells them what to fight. He tells them what their goal is. Well, sin is like that. It directs our bodies. It directs our thinking. It controls us. He says sin is like a master who tyrannizes us. Some of you maybe have worked for an individual who has not been a pleasant person to work for. In fact, their control over you has been brutal. It's been tyrannizing. It's all you could do, but you needed the job to go into work each and every day. Sometimes a spouse can be that way. Sometimes a parent can be that way over a child. Sin is a master not for our good, but one to tyrannize us. One whose sole goal is our harm and our hurt. And sin is also described as an employer who pays wages. What are the wages of sin? Death. So that's what, how Paul describes us before our union with Christ. But when the Holy Spirit unites us with Christ, our old self, that, that self that is um, under the control of sin has died to its power because of Christ's accomplishment on the cross. Because of what Christ did historically on the cross, we now can experientially understand and know that we too have died to sin, rendered powerless to it, freed from it, Paul goes on to say sin's reign over us is now gone because we've died to it. He says, don't let sin reign in you. It has no authority over you. Don't let it conscript you. You don't have to listen to it. It's no longer a general who has any power over you. Use your body in service of the Lord. And so it's our union with Christ through the work of the Spirit that helps us achieve this transformation of how we talk to ourselves and what we say to ourselves. I, I, this, this one sentence is such a helpful sentence. Holiness is the naturalness of the spiritually risen person, man or woman. It's like when we are united to Christ now and we've been born again by the Spirit, holiness, it becomes natural to us. We now want to do what is right. We now are convicted when we do what is wrong. We now want to, 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 to bring our lives in line with God. And that increases as we walk with him. So why do I need the Spirit's help? So it's the Spirit. We, we need new life. Um, our goal is the perfection of Christ. It's achieved through union with, uh, with Christ. Why do I need the Spirit's help? Because what goes on inside of you, nobody else knows. There is stuff that all of us have inside of us that we talk to, we talk about, we think about that nobody else knows. You hear what I say every Sunday. You can come up to me and say, I don't think that was right, Paul. I think you got that wrong. You used that scripture out of context. 
I can go for coffee. You can go for coffee with anybody. You have a conversation and somebody can challenge you on what you're saying or challenge you on how you're saying it or say, you shouldn't talk like that. That's not good. You don't, don't use that language. Who does that in your self-talk? Who is the monitor? Who is the guide? Who, who, what's the objective standard for what you say to yourselves? That's why we need the Spirit of God. That's why we need the Word of God. We need some objective standard against which to measure or perfect or change our self-talk against. God says to Jeremiah, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind and give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. David talks to his son and he says, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. You might think you're the only one that thinks that. You might think you're the only one that's devising that. You might think, and you're right, as far as other human beings are concerned. But you're wrong as far as God is concerned. Because God knows the very thoughts and intents and motives of your heart. That same son would later write, every way of man is right in his own eyes. Isn't that true? We, we talk ourselves in all kinds of things. That's why we're supposed to have a word with yourselves. Every man knows what is right in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. The Lord knows why you did that. The Lord knows the intent behind which you did that. The Lord knows how you talked yourself into doing that. And the Lord wants to help you talk yourselves out of doing those sorts of things. I was thinking of this um, in relation to Abraham and Sarah, just to illustrate this point uh, just a little bit. Some of you maybe know the story of Abraham and Sarah. Abraham was uh, 100, Sarah was 90. Um, they didn't have any children. Uh, 25 years earlier, God had told them they were gonna have children. And um, 24 years after that promise, God comes back to them as these three visitors come and the angel of the Lord comes up to Abraham uh, just after dinner and he says, you know, Abraham, uh, I'm gonna give you a son by your wife, Sarah. Abraham's response is rather remarkable. This is a quote from scripture. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed. Like that was his external response to the word of God. He fell on his face and he laughed. This is his internal response. And he said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old and shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? In other words, inside him, he had this conversation. God can't do that. I don't believe that word. No, that's just a bunch of hooey. There's not a chance that's gonna take place. Again, the Lord appeared to Abraham and repeated his promise to give him a son by Sarah. This time, Sarah was hiding in a tent listening when she heard this, she laughed to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Just a reminder, God knows what we say to ourselves. God knows those conversations that we have with ourselves. That's why we need the spirit of God though in us because we don't think anybody else hears those conversations. Father, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before a word is on my tongue, you know it all together. Please, by your spirit, search me, O God. Know my heart. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way, after, in, in the way everlasting. 
Let me be open to the convicting work of your spirit. Allow me to be humble before your word as the spirit applies it in such a way that it will discern the thoughts and intentions of my heart. I need the spirit because I'm not objective. And I need the spirit because putting to death, which is how the Bible describes dealing with sin, putting to death is a very, very difficult thing. To put to death sins means that we kill them. It's fighting, these are fighting words, so to speak. One man wrote, uh, and the biblical or the, the theological term to putting to death is called mortification. Mort means death and mortification means to put to death. And so one wrote, the mortification means that the flesh is to have its power, life, vigor, strength to produce its effects taken away by the spirit. All the things that make you sin, all the things that, 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 that you tell yourself that are sinful, it's the work of the Spirit to help you deal with those. Get rid of them. Stop them. It's described in a lot of places in Scripture. Um, in Ephesians, Paul says, but that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. There it is again. This, this, these, these, these desires that we have that are wrong, that are deceptive, that are deceitful. And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on a new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Isn't when we? Isn't that our desire and our thought life to have them? controlled and guided by true righteousness and holiness? Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Those are not easy things to kill. Those thoughts, those conversations, that's why we need the Spirit. I I read this, and this helps me understand how difficult it is to put to death sins in my life. This is J.I. Packer's description at mortification or negating. He says, it is a matter of negating, wishing dead and laboring to thwart inclinations, cravings, and habits that have been in you for a long time. So first of all, it's just this, this, this Change of thinking that says, okay, I'm done now. I can't continue doing this. I can't continue thinking like this. I can't continue with that habit. And then he goes on, he says, pain and grief, moans and groans will certainly be involved for your sin does not want to die, nor will it enjoy the killing process. Some of you have fought fought an addiction. You know that. It doesn't want to leave you. You don't want it to let it go. There's a certain level of pleasure and enjoyment that you got out of it, but you realize it's destroying you. The process of giving up that addiction is not an easy one. Well, that's the same with killing any sin in our life. The reason why we like to sin is because it's likable, is it not? Jesus told us very vividly that mortifying a sin, this is Packer, could well feel like plucking out an eye or cutting off a hand or a foot. In other words, self-mutilation. You will feel you are saying goodbye to something that is so much a part of you that with it you cannot live. 
Have you ever told yourself about that? There's a hatred that you have for somebody and you hate them so much. You know you shouldn't, but you think if I let go of that, I'm gonna have no reason to live. I know people like that. Or people who covet somebody else's stuff. They know they shouldn't do it, but they just so want it. They just so want the life of that person and the stuff that they're covenant. And they think, if, if I let go of this thought life, I'm gonna have nothing good to think about. I'm gonna just have a dull, boring life. Anxiousness, fear. I think some of, sometimes that's why when uh, some, I think it was a blind person came to Jesus one day, obviously blind, and Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? Well, it was obvious. He, he wanted to be healed of his blindness. But I think Jesus wanted him to think that through because that would mean his whole life would change. For years, he had lived off of other people's generosity, other people's goodness. They had carried him everywhere. They had directed him everywhere. They had given him his living. Now, for the first time, he would have to fend for himself. And he might have thought to himself, well, I don't want to live like that. I'd rather be blind than be healed. That's why mortification of sin is so difficult because it will feel like you're saying goodbye to something that is so much a part of you that without it, you cannot live. You will feel that you cannot live. If we ever want to deal with the sins in our lives, we have to deal with the inner sinful urges that we have, with the evil, sinful, unworthy thoughts and the self-talk that fills us and tells us that we should have that, we should do that. We need to starve these sinful urges and what stimulates them. Pornography, if lust is the issue. Visits to smorgasbords, if the urge is gluttony. Avoiding casinos, if the urge is greed. As we find our self-talk leading us away from obedience, we need to learn at that moment to run to our Lord and cry for help, asking him to deepen our sense of his holy presence and redeeming love and to give us the strength to say no to, which that, to, to that which only displeases him. It is the spirit who moves us to act in this way. This is why we need the spirit because those things have such a grip on us. It's the spirit that moves us and tips the balance and say no. This is how God wants us to behave. Lastly, and we can cover this really quickly. This is one example of application. How do we form these Christ-like habits of governing our self-talk? J.R. Packer, uh, in one of his books, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. And he talks about the, how the fruit of the Spirit ought to be habitual reactions to the circumstances of life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those should be just habitual responses that you and I um, develop to deal with the circumstances of life. I've been so bold as to change his language and say we need to have behavioral talking points. We see that, right? If you give a lecture or you give a speech, you have talking points often. You, you, you write them down and these will guide what you say. Um, if you go into a negotiations, you might not have everything written out, but you have talking points, things that you want to cover in those negotiations. Well, I think we can have spiritual talking points that helps regulate our self-talk. Things that we, that, we, that we know that these will guide us as we enter into those conversations that we have with ourselves. So we use the fruit of the Spirit. Love. Love is one of the talking points that we have, that it's a Christ-like reaction to 
people's malice. They hate me, I'm to love my enemies. They hate me, I'm to be like God who demonstrated his love towards me while I was yet a sinner, yet an enemy of his. That I will tell myself and I will teach myself that my conversation, both internally and externally, needs to be filtered through love. What about joy as a talking point in our life? It's the Christ-like reaction to depressing circumstances. In, in one place, um, the, the biblical writer says, count it all joy when you face all kinds of troubles and tribulations. Why? Because of what those things produce in us. And so that ought to be a talking point rather than complaining and whining and murmuring and having all these conversations about how miserable our life is. We change that talking point to say, no, I'm supposed to understand and realize and know why this should be a joyful situation for me and a joyful circumstance for me. I will talk accordingly in my soul. And we can go on peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and self-control. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit can serve as a series of self-talk talking points that can regulate and guide and direct the way that you talk in your heart. Oh, loved ones, we need the Spirit of God to transform us externally and internally. And I know it may be discouraging sometimes for you to reflect on the conversations that you have with yourself or actually catch yourself and think, what was I thinking? Or what am I thinking? Two things. Don't think that you are the best guide of your own self-talk. And secondly, realize that God is not gonna leave you, but he's gonna help you. And he wants to change you and he wants to transform you. And he wants your insides to be as clean as your outsides are. Father, we come before you today and as we wrestle with sanctification, it has applications in so many areas of our life, but today we get to think about its application to those conversations that we have with ourselves all the time about so many things and so many people and so many circumstances and even about you and about your word. I just reflect on Abraham and Sarah, just that internal conversation that they had with themselves about your word to them. Nah, it's a bunch of hooey, it's never gonna happen. Father, would you help us with the power of your spirit to inform our inward dialogue with the truth of your word, to realize the great joy there is and getting a hold of even the thought and intentions of our own hearts for your glory and for your honor. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.